Chris, and you are with us on The Sausage of Science. We have a very special lecture by Bill Leonard from Northwestern University. You heard our interview with him on the last podcast episode. If you listened, if you did not, I highly recommend going back and checking that out. Dr. Leonard was at the University of Alabama to give the James R. Binden Biocultural Anthropology and Health Lecture. As you hear, he pays tribute to our own Jim Binden and gives a great summary on the past, present, and future of human adaptability studies by synthesizing his own work. Enjoy! It is truly a pleasure and an honor to be here today delivering the James R. Binden Lecture in Biocultural Anthropology and Health. I've known Jim for many, many years. We, we both are part of the extended Penn State Mafia, I guess you would say. <laughs> I'm a, a grandchild of, the, of Paul Baker, Jim, of course, was a PhD student of his. One of the things that I've always admired about Jim, his work really embodies the integration of adaptive and biocultural approaches to human biology, what I'll be touching on today. And I would note that this, this integrative approach is clearly a legacy of Jim's contribution to this department because it is richly on display in your outstanding program. Tremendous commitment to integrative anthropology, which I think is really decreasing in anthro departments across the country. And so part of my talk today will be about looking at a bit of the history on the development of biocultural and adaptive approaches to human biology, and also hopefully a rallying cry for embracing the integrative roots of our discipline. Human biology prides itself on being an integrative discipline that examines how both ecological and social factors influence human biological variation in health. Indeed, what distinguishes our discipline from much of biomedical research is the fact that we're interested in untangling both the proximate and distal pathways that influence human biology and health. And in addition, we're also interested in those larger why questions. That is, what are the origins of variation in biology and health within and between populations? Since the original pioneering human adaptability research done during the 1960s, as part of what was known as the International Biological Program, or the IBP, the study of variation in human health has expanded and become increasingly sophisticated. Our methods for measuring and analyzing physiological, genetic, social, and behavioral variables has improved substantially. Over time, we've also witnessed the growth and maturation of two important theoretical approaches to the study of human biology the adaptive or evolutionary approach, and the biocultural approach. Yet, despite important advances in both of these theoretical domains, research in human biology and health is most often framed as either adaptive or biocultural. I think this is a false dichotomy that moves us away from our historic strengths of our discipline and limits the explanatory powers of our models. More effective integration of social, cultural, and economic information into our research is critical for providing a better understanding of the adaptive options available to human populations. Conversely, information on genetic and physiological variation is critical for gaining insights about how the forces of social change and economic modernization affect variation in health outcomes. This integration of biocultural and adaptive domains has been a central part of the research career of Jim Binden. From his work on health and lifestyle change in Samoa, to his explorations of the nature of health disparities in Native American and African American populations. Moreover, it is a foundational strength of the anthropology program here 
and one that I think is surprisingly rare in anthro programs across the country. Human biology is really a relatively young field that emerged as a distinctive area of anthropology in the late 1950s and early 60s. The establishment of the IBP, the International Biological Program, in 1964 provided a foundation for initiating some of the first large-scale comparative research studies on human biological variation and adaptation to environmental stressors. This work was carried out as part of what was known as the Human Adaptability Program, or HAP, one of seven program areas that were established in the larger IBP. The Human Adaptability Research Program promoted a wide range of collaborative multidisciplinary research projects around the world. In our world, two of the best known of these projects were the biology of high-altitude populations led by Paul Baker and the Penn State Research Group studying Quechua populations of the southern Peruvian Andes. Another major contribution to the IBP was the study of Arctic and circumpolar populations led by William Laughlin and his research group at the University of Wisconsin and Roy Shepard and his colleagues at the University of Toronto studying Inuit populations of Alaska and the Northwest Territories of Canada. The IBP era research helped to expand and revitalize the field of biological anthropology, providing a framework for studying human adaptation and evolution among contemporary human populations. This diverse research conducted as part of the IBP also trained a generation of scholars who expanded the profile of human biology within the field of biological anthropology. Indeed, while the IBP represented clearly a golden age for human biology research, the research approach was criticized on many fronts. And these critiques, along with the many successes of the IBP, have helped to strongly shape the research directions in human biology over the last half century. Among the most widely noted critique of the human adaptability work was the lack of attention to the potential influence of socioeconomic, political, and historical forces on human variation and health. While sociocultural anthropologists were part of some of the early human adaptability projects, the biological effects of poverty, marginality, and psychosocial stress were not systematically considered in the original adaptability paradigm. Another widely voiced critique of the human adaptability studies was the lack of standardization of sampling methodologies and an emphasis on cross-sectional rather than longitudinal designs. Obviously an issue when you're talking about elements of change and evolution. Thirdly, one of the most striking limitations of the early adaptability studies was their inability to detect a genetic basis for human adaptations to major environmental stressors. Indeed, contrary to the initial expectations of the work, none of the human adaptability studies showed a genetic evidence for adaptations to either cold or high-altitude stressors. Rather, both of these research programs emphasize the importance of developing developmental adaptation. Indeed, we now recognize that both the research designs and the technical limitations of those genetic analyses greatly limited the ability of early adaptability researchers to identify signatures of natural selection. Over the last 50 years, developments in research on both biocultural and genetic aspects of human biology have helped to transform the field. Since the 1980s, researchers in human biology have developed ever more sophisticated approaches to understanding mechanisms through which socioeconomic and lifestyle changes influence health and well-being. In addition, similarly, tremendous advances have been made in statistical and molecular approaches to the study of human diversity and are now reshaping our understanding of the genetic bases of human adaptation to ecological stressors. 
In addition, the shift away from early research designs that emphasized single population studies to those that focused on comparing adaptive patterns across populations has allowed us to better understand the influence of natural selection on human variation. The development and impact of biocultural and genetic research domains has been particularly evident in the study of high altitude. In the original adaptability work, what was found in the Andes is that there was no evidence of genetic adaptation to altitude stress among the Quechua. Rather, the distinctive aspects of both morphology and physiology were seen as being attributable to the joint influences of hypoxia and cold through developmental adaptation during the growth period. That is, hypoxic stress during growth was thought to accelerate the rate of growth of the oxygen transport system, resulting in the expanded lungs, chests, and hearts that we see characteristic of Andean populations. Conversely, the slowed rate of growth in the musculoskeletal system was seen as a developmental response to the joint stressors of hypoxia and cold, interacting together to increase overall energy requirements and thus reduce the overall rates of natural growth and growth in body weight, producing the short stature and small body size characteristic of rural highlanders. This model of high altitude adaptation, known as the developmental adaptation model, held sway until the 1980s. However, we now recognize that the picture is much more complicated. Studies of indigenous highland populations in Tibet and Ethiopia by Cynthia Bell and her colleagues clearly show striking differences in adaptive physiology and morphology from the classic Andean pattern documented in the early adaptability studies. Additionally, there is compelling evidence that these differences have a genetic basis. Consequently, while developmental responses play a critical role in high-altitude adaptation, it also appears that natural selection has worked with different mutations in Andean versus Tibetan versus Ethiopian populations to produce a distinctly different constellation of adaptations. Andean populations respond to altitude through substantial increases in hemoglobin levels, that is, their blood is thicker, increasing the oxygen carrying capacity, and greatly expanded lungs and chest dimensions. In contrast, Tibetan populations have lower hemoglobin levels, similar to those at sea level, and smaller lung volumes than their Andean counterparts living at the same elevations. Instead, they have relatively more rapid breathing rates, both at rest and in response to hypoxia. It thus appears that among different high-altitude populations around the world, natural selection has favored different pathways for adapting to the same stress. Subsequent work has also changed our understanding of the causes of short stature and small adult body size in these groups. While the early IVP work concluded that short stature and small adult body size of the Quechua was the result of developmental acclimatization to hypoxia and cold stress, subsequent research found that these features were in fact largely the consequence of poverty, illness, and poor childhood nutrition. Thus, as is the case throughout much of the developing world, socioeconomic and nutritional factors play a dominant role in shaping childhood growth and the resulting adult body size and health status in rural Andean populations. And so some of this work was were the studies that Tom Leatherman and I did in the 1980s when we went back to the site of Nunoa, and most recently, the really nice work that you've heard about from Morgan Hope. Third generation of researchers in Nunoa showing very nicely how differentiation in subsistence activities and economic activities strongly shapes variation in growth and development among children in the Nunoa district. Improvements in socioeconomic and nutritional status among the population in Nunoa resulted in increases in height and weight. So that the upper socioeconomic children are not only taller than their socio lower socioeconomic counterparts, but they are 
also significantly taller and heavier than the children who were measured back in the 1960s. A secular trend in the higher socioeconomic children who had improved nutrition, whereas those children of families whose economic status remained the same showed no secular trend at all, were exactly the same size. These changes in our understanding of the biology and health of indigenous Highlanders underscore the potential power of integrating both genetic and sociocultural information into standard functional and morphological data that human biologists have traditionally collected. We are also increasingly seeing how conditions of poverty, inequality, and lifestyle modernization are all powerful forces in shaping human biology and health. However, we've also witnessed that these forces of social and economic change do not produce uniform biological outcomes across all populations. To the contrary, it seems that key developmental and genetic differences within and between populations structure differential responses to lifestyle modernization. These are some of the issues that we've been exploring in our ongoing field projects in Siberia and Bolivia. I'd now like to consider some of our Siberian work. This work is an international collaboration that focuses on two main questions. The first is the question of how indigenous Siberians have adapted to their cold and marginal climate. In particular, do we find evidence of metabolic adaptations in response to extreme cold and short day length? Additionally, we're also interested in how ongoing social and economic changes in post-Soviet Russia are influencing the health and nutritional status of indigenous Siberians. To address these questions, we've studied several different Siberian populations over the last 27 years, including the Avenki reindeer herders and cat fishermen of the Central Siberian Plateau, the Buryat cattle herders of the Southern Siberian steppes, and since 2003, longitudinal research among the Yakut cattle and horse herders of the Northeastern Siberian boreal forest. Our research has employed a diverse range of methodologies, including developing energetics, techniques for measuring energy expenditure at rest, and total energy expenditure during free living conditions to assess physical activity levels. As well, we've also employed standard anthropometric techniques for assessing body size, composition, and physical nutritional status. We've used detailed household surveys to assess sociodemographic parameters, food use, and perceived health status. We've also collected a wide range of biomarkers of health and physiological function, including serum lipids, glucose levels, hemoglobin, blood pressure, and selected hormones related to energy metabolism. Since the 1920s, research on indigenous Arctic populations has suggested that these groups have elevated metabolic heat production compared to temperate and tropical populations. Early studies of metabolism on indigenous northern groups, such as the Inuit, showed basal metabolic rates were much higher than expected for their body size. This was interpreted as a physiological adaptation to cold stress. Later, classic analyses by Derek Roberts suggested that this variation in basal metabolism was a worldwide phenomenon in which metabolism was inversely associated with mean annual temperature. That is, in colder climates, your basal metabolism goes up to produce more heat. In warmer climates, it is more sluggish because you're responding to heat stress. However, most of this early work was based on small samples, almost entirely of men, and there were several potentially confounding variables that were not controlled for, such as anxiety and diet. Consequently, one of our primary goals was to re-examine metabolic adaptation using current technology under controlled conditions. Our results clearly show that indigenous Siberians have significant and systematic elevations in basal metabolism compared to international reference standards. Here we see the relationship between basal metabolism and lean body mass among indigenous Siberian men and women compared to international reference standards. Note that the relationship between basal metabolism and lean weight in Siberian men and women is significantly elevated above the reference line. 
We've also found that indigenous Siberians have higher metabolic rates than non-indigenous Russians living in the same community. We've also found that Siberians show significant increases in metabolism during the wintertime. During the severe winter cold, in Yakutia it gets down to minus 50 and minus 60 degrees regularly. What we see is that metabolic heat production goes up by an average of 6%. To promote these increases in metabolism, the tissues of the body take up thyroid hormones at a much more rapid rate during the winter. This pattern of wintertime declines in thyroid hormone levels has been consistently found among groups in the cold circumpolar environments and is known as the polar T3 syndrome. In addition to these alterations in thyroid function, we've also identified two other pathways that are important for promoting metabolic heat production among indigenous Siberians. These include key mutations in the mitochondrial genome and the presence of a specialized type of body fat known as brown adipose tissue or brown fat, which increases metabolism. In Siberians, notably in the Akut, we find these distinct mitochondrial DNA haplogroups, A, C, and D, that are associated with increased rates of heat production and energy expenditure at both the cellular and the whole body level. In terms of brown fat, Stephanie Levy's recent dissertation research using thermal imaging has shown that Yakut populations retain significant amounts of brown adipose tissue and that this brown fat substantially increases metabolic heat production in response to cold. Until recently, high basal metabolic rates and active lifestyles of subsistence Siberian populations contributed to high levels of energy expenditure, low rates of obesity, and relatively low risks of cardiovascular disease. Indeed, despite consuming diets that are high in animal material and relatively high in fat, traditionally living Arctic populations have generally had very low plasma lipid levels and high levels of aerobic and cardiovascular fitness. However, since the fall of the Soviet Union, the social and economic changes in Russia have resulted in a dismantling of many of the indigenous herding and farming cooperatives and a shift away from subsistence lifestyles to a more market-oriented way of life. Overall, this has resulted in the emergence of heterogeneous lifestyles. Today, most families pursue a mixed economy with some wage employment along with continued participation in some traditional subsistence activities such as herding, farming, or foraging to supplement their diets. We're also, of course, seeing a marked rise in the availability of Western food products even in these once isolated rural villages. Here we see some of the examples of these changes in the tiny village that we've been working in, eastern Siberia increased television viewing, and all manner of Western food products. These changes in lifestyle are resulting in shifts in energy expenditure and growing rates of overweight and obesity. Of our sociodemographic measures, we find that level of engagement in subsistence activities is consistently the strongest predictor of biological and health outcomes, more so than standard measures of income or education level. We find that greater participation in subsistence activities, as we go up in that scale, is associated with significantly higher levels of total energy expenditure and physical activity. Those individuals that are most integrated in the market economy with little or no involvement in traditional activities actually live a relatively sedentary lifestyle. Thus, we find that the adoption of a more market-oriented lifestyle is associated with reductions in total energy expenditure. This lifeway is also associated with greater risks of obesity and cardiovascular health problems. In a recently published study, we looked at the influence of lifestyle factors on changes in body weight, composition, and several cardiovascular biomarkers. We found that among those with greater involvement in subsistence tasks, 
was associated with significantly less weight gain, less fat gain, and significantly better measures of lipids and blood pressure. The health consequences of the lifestyle transition that we're looking at are clearly becoming evident in our longitudinal data. Here we see changes in percent body fat and prevalence of overweight and obesity in the Yakut between 2003 and 2009. Although obesity levels in the Yakut are not yet to the level that we see in the United States, Fully half of all adults now have BMIs that are in the overweight or obese category. So that would be BMIs of 25 or greater. Overall, our work has demonstrated in Siberia that there is systematic and significant elevations in basal metabolism on the order of 15 to 20%. Among the Yakut, we also find significant increases in metabolic rates during the severe winter cold. These elevations in metabolic rate appear to be influenced by alterations in thyroid hormone function as well as significant levels of differentiated brown adipose tissue and key mitochondrial mutations. Additionally, we've also found that lifestyle changes in post-Soviet Russia are resulting in increasing rates of overweight and obesity and cardiovascular risk. Standard measures of socioeconomic status, such as income and education, prove not to be strong predictors of these health risks. Rather, consistent engagement in traditional activities is the most consistent predictor of variation in expenditure, activity, and chronic health risks. Thus, we see that variation in the biology and health of the Yakut and other Siberian groups reflects an interplay between adaptation to their distinct ecology and changes in physical activity, diet, and other aspects of lifestyle. I'd now like to turn our focus from the Arctic down to the tropics and talk briefly about the work that we're conducting among the Chimani of lowland Bolivia. The goals of this research are broadly similar to our Siberian work. That is, understanding how ecology influences health and nutritional status in a tropical rainforest environment, and as well, taking a look at how lifestyle change and integration to the market economy are influencing the health of the Chimani. In addition, for eight years, we used our research site as the location for a National Science Foundation-funded summer research methods camp for graduate students in biocultural anthropology. This was an opportunity to provide students with hands-on training in methods in both biological and cultural anthropology and then give them an opportunity to, to apply those tools in a field setting. Between 2004 and 2011, the field school provided training opportunities for 46 <coughs> PhD students 12 undergraduates, and another four medical students and MPH students. In 2002, we initiated the Chimani Amazonian Panel Study, a longitudinal study of ecology, health, and lifestyle change. We're currently working in 13 Chimani communities along the Maniki River in the Beni Department of Bolivia. The communities vary in their distance from the market town of San Borja. Some are a half-hour walking distance from town. Others are two-day canoe rides upriver. This has really been a fruitful and exciting project for me to be part of. I mean, the project is, I think, truly collaborative with each of the researchers, bringing a distinct yet complementary set of skills to the project. Specifically in monitoring health and nutritional status, we've looked at measures of physical growth and nutritional status with anthropometric techniques, assessment of household food availability, information on access to energy and nutrients, assessment of hemoglobin levels and other biomarkers of health, and as well, measurement of intestinal parasite loads to give us an index of infectious 
infectious disease levels. To date, we found that early childhood chronic undernutrition and growth stunting remains a major problem in the Chamani, with almost half of the children under the age of 10 at baseline having low height for age. That is indicative of stunting. <clears throat> chronic undernutrition in children appears to be attributable to the joint effects of poor dietary quality and high parasitic disease load. We found that fully 76% of children have some degree of parasitic infection, mostly roundworm and hookworm, and 59% are anemic, that is with low hemoglobin levels. Yet even as undernutrition in children remains a problem, we're also finding increasing rates of overweight and obesity in adults. This is creating a problem known as the dual nutritional burden, characterized by the coexistence of both undernutrition and overnutrition in the same communities. This slide shows patterns of growth in height and body fatness for Chimani girls compared to WHO references. Note that the Chimani are quite short in stature, that is stunted relative to their reference peers, while skinfold measures of body fatness more closely approximate the median values. This characteristic pattern of growth is reflective of chronic undernutrition. This pattern, low height but adequate weight and fatness, is seen among the Chimani and other Amazonian groups and is similar to that seen in many rural impoverished populations around the world. In terms of overall food availability, our surveys somewhat surprisingly show that the status is relatively good, with per capita household energy availability being about 2,800 calories per person per day, and protein availability about 80 grams per day. Consequently, the problem for young children does not appear to be a frank lack of calories or energy, but rather a low dietary quality, with insufficient micronutrients combined with high infectious disease loads. Here we see the composition of the Chimani diet as reflected in the percent of energy from different food items. Garden crops, including rice, cassava, and plantains, make up the largest share of the diet, about 67% of calories, with market foods, domesticated animals, and hunting and fishing, each contributing between 7 and up to 15% for the market food. In terms of predictors of health outcomes, one of the most consistent and compelling findings of our work has been the demonstration that preservation of traditional knowledge is associated with better health and nutritional status, as well as better stewardship of the forest. The work done by our colleague, Vicky Reyes-Garcia, has shown that knowledge about the forest is widely shared among the Chimani, but that with articulation to the market economy and being closer to the urban center, that knowledge is lost at a very rapid rate. In a series of subsequent studies, we have shown that greater knowledge about the forest is associated with greater crop diversity, and lower forest clearance, that is, those families are better stewards of forest resources, and as well, better measures of child health. That is, mothers with greater plant knowledge and knowledge about traditional medicine had children with better growth, nutritional status, immune function, and lower rates of parasitic infection. These findings, I think, have important applied and development implications, showing the value of preservation of traditional knowledge for promoting health and well-being and preservation of ecological diversity. The longitudinal depth of our research is also allowing us to track long-term changes in both children's and adults' health. The results for children are encouraging, showing improvements in growth and nutritional status. Even as children's growth status is improving, however, we find that among adults, rates of overweight and obesity and associated metabolic issues are on the rise. Chimani men and women show increases significantly in both measures. Men and women, on average, show increases of 2 to 3% in percent body fatness 
And the prevalence of overweight and obesity, again, BMIs of 25 and over, has increased by more than 50%. While rates of overweight are on the rise in the Chimani, the overall levels of overweight and obesity are still lower than we found in the Yakut. Dietary changes appear to play an important role in promoting these increasing rates of overweight. We specifically have found that greater household expenditure on market foods are associated with greater risk of obesity. Contributions of market foods to the diet vary strongly with this to the town of San Borja. Compared to more remote communities, households in the closer-in communities derive more than twice the number of calories from market foods. Thus, the pattern that is emerging with the Chimani is one that is being observed in middle and low-income countries around the world. That is, of the dual or double nutritional burden of malnutrition, in which conditions of both undernutrition and overnutrition coexist in the same community. In the Chimani, high rates of growth stunting and childhood undernutrition persist even as rates of overweight and obesity are increasing in adults. A growing body of research in human biology and public health suggests that these two phenomena may be linked. That is, that early life undernutrition may predispose individuals to becoming obese later in life during adulthood. This work suggests that poor early life nutrition essentially prepares the body for famine-type conditions and produces a thrifty metabolism that is associated with lower rates of energy expenditure and fat metabolism. Consequently, these individuals are at greater risk for obesity, and when they are exposed to more westernized diets in adulthood that are higher in sugar and fats, they have greater tendency to become obese and show cardiovascular disease. Our ongoing work with the Chimani is directly testing this proposition and addressing this question. Specifically considering, do children who were stunted at baseline in 2002, 15, 16 years ago now, do they today show lower rates of basal metabolism, have lower levels of energy expenditure, have they gained more weight and more fat, do they have poor metabolic profiles than those children that were not stunted at baseline? One of the things that is striking about the Chimani, as I indicated a moment ago, is the fact that they show poorer measures of cardiovascular health with lower BMIs and body fatness. Overall, in both sexes, the Yakut have significantly higher levels of BMIs and levels of adiposity than their Chimani counterparts. Yet despite the fact that the Chimani remain lighter and leaner than the Yakut, their overall measures of metabolic health are poorer. What we find is that overall rates of metabolic syndrome then in the Chimani are more than double those of the Yakut, 22% versus 9%. In a Chimani have significantly higher blood pressure levels, whereas Yakut have significantly higher levels of blood pressure, whereas the Chimani have dramatically higher levels of both glucose and triglycerides. Consequently, these results underscore the fact that the rise of obesity and associated chronic health problems with lifestyle change is not a monolithic process in populations around the world. Rather, the development of these problems is strongly shaped by variation in ecology, social context, and physiology. Our ongoing work is exploring how these factors interact to produce the distinctive disease clusterings that we see in different populations. It appears, for example, that the high rates of basal energy expenditure and fat metabolism, reflective of the adaptive physiology to cold may actually play a protective role in moderating the increases in blood glucose and lipid levels with lifestyle change. In contrast, among the Chimani, high disease loads and chronic undernutrition early in life appear to contribute to lower levels of energy expenditure and impaired fat metabolism, making them more susceptible to metabolic health problems with smaller increases in body weight and fatness. This type of model of linking adaptive physiology with health changes associated with modernization 
This is, of course, something that has characterized Jim Bindon's research throughout his career, particularly as notable in a very influential 1997 paper that Jim co-authored with Paul Baker on Bergman's rule and the thrifty phenotype. In this paper, they argue that selection for a thrifty genotype among populations of Oceania contributed to their heavier-than-expected body weights, and they go on to show that those deviations from predicted body weights strongly predict prevalence of diabetes levels in these populations. Subsequent work, I think, in this part of the world is beginning to confirm many key aspects of this model. Consequently, we see evidence for interplay between local adaptations and lifestyle change, producing a distinct patterning of chronic disease risk. Overall, this work, I think, offers to provide important insights and better understanding to the tremendous rise of obesity and diabetes that we are seeing worldwide. In sum, over the last 50 years, the field of human biology has grown and matured, moving beyond its largely descriptive origins. Yet with the expansion of research domains, there has been growing fragmentation in the field, particularly between the biocultural and adaptive approaches. In this talk, I've tried to highlight the utility of linking biocultural and adaptive perspectives in my own work. This commitment to an integrative approach to human biology is richly evident in the work of Professor James R. Binden. From his long-term research on the biological and health consequences of lifestyle modernization in Samoa, to his work on the rise of dimensions of health disparities among the Mississippi Choctaw and African Americans of Alabama. By embracing these integrative roots, I think we have the unique power to address many of today's long-standing global problems. Thank you very much. The Sausage of Science is produced by me, Chris Lynn, and Kara Ackerbach for the Publicity Committee of the Human Biology Association. You can find me at Chris underscore L-Y on Twitter and Kara at Kara Ackerbach also on Twitter. And yeah, take care, everybody. Talk to you next time.